city heart be flooded with stuttering sounds. Gutter music for silver lining clouds tumbling down. Town we breathe in memory black. Welcome everybody. You are listening to Working Class Heroes Radio a show about working class culture and politics. We are based in what is currently occupied Lenape land, a.k.a. New York City. My name is Lupita Romero, and I'm one of your hosts tonight. And I'm your other host, Danny Catch. As the city continues to roll out the vaccine and reopen indoor dining, <laughs> questionable, we thought we'd focus on the people who've been feeding the city, delivering and selling food out in the streets throughout the pandemic, restaurant workers and street vendors. So we're going to be joined by Natalia Tilim and Gary Inman, two restaurant workers who have been organizing through the Restaurant Organizing Project for better protections and dignity for all restaurant workers across the city. We'll also be chatting with Stella Becerril, an organizer for the Street Vendors Project, about the ongoing issues street vendors have been facing, as well as some recent victories. Well, first, as always, we're going to start with a roundup of some of the news from this past week. In international news, in India, farmers are now entering their sixth month of protests against new laws that would help giant agribusiness to squeeze out small farmers. Tens of thousands have traveled across the country and created tent cities, blocking roads outside of the capital of Delhi. The right-wing nationalist government of Narendra Modi is pushing for the free market farm bill by cracking down on protesters' freedom. The Indian government has thrown protesters in jail, shut down the internet around protest sites, and pressured Twitter to suspend the accounts of hundreds of protesters. Modi has also vilified the farmers, many of whom are Sikh, as outside agitators with hidden agendas. But in spite of this repression, the protests have continued and even grown in what many are calling the biggest mass movement India has seen since the struggle against British colonialism. Meanwhile, in the country of Myanmar, a movement of strikes and protests continues in response to a coup launched by the military after the re-election of Aung San Suu Kyi and her party, the National League for Democracy. Aung San Suu Kyi took office in 2016 after spending 15 years in house arrest under the last military dictatorship. Her first term in many ways was a disappointment, especially her support for the military's genocidal policies against the country's Rohingya minority, hundreds of thousands of whom have been forced to flee to Bangladesh. Railway workers have joined the strike wave. The military has attempted to take over the railroads, but the Associated Press reports that in some locations, citizens have stood on the tracks to stop trains from running. Protesters are asking for international solidarity to force the military to step down and to pressure multinational oil and gas companies not to support the regime. And in national news, winter storms and power failures across much of the country this past week has led to the death of at least 47 people, a number that is expected to rise as cities recover. The hardest hit region has been Texas, where millions spent days in frigid temperatures without heat or water including people in ICE concentration camps and prisons. Local Republican officials have tried to blame renewable energy, such as wind turbines, for the outages, when in fact, most of the state's energy actually comes from natural fracking gas. Many Texans were left in the dark because the state's power grid was unprepared for the increased demand for heat during the storm and imposed rolling blackouts to prevent more severe damage. The grid is overseen by the Energy Reliability Council of Texas, or ERCOT, which has long faced criticism for not regulating the state's energy companies. 
In 2011, after a storm left 3 million without power, it was concluded that ERCOT needed to winterize the grid, but these recommendations were never enforced. At ERCOT's last meeting before the storm this year, the Austin American Statesman reports that the council spent less than one minute discussing storm preparedness. And in local news, here in New York, Governor Andrew Cuomo is under fire for covering up the number of COVID-19-related deaths in the state's nursing homes. Cuomo's administration previously reported that 8,500 people have died, when in fact that number is around 15,000. The governor was criticized earlier this year for slipping a provision into the budget bill that gave nursing homes and hospitals immunity from lawsuits over their handling of COVID. Critics said that the immunity was a reward for the sizable campaign donations that Cuomo has received from Greater New York Hospital Association. Assemblymember Ron Kim from Queens alleges that the governor threatened to destroy his career after Kim criticized Cuomo's cover-up. Instead, Ron Kim and nine other assembly members have submitted a letter in support of a bill that would revoke the governor's emergency powers related to the pandemic. And now we're going to conclude headlines with a few updates on some of our previous guests on the show. Amazon is suing New York State Attorney General Letitia James in an attempt to stop her own lawsuit against the company for unsafe COVID protocols inside its warehouses that contributed to the spread of the virus and for firing Staten Island employee Christian Smalls in March when he led a protest over the issue. And for an update on Javier Castillo Maradiaga's case, the 27-year-old from the Bronx who was set to be deported for jaywalking despite, despite Biden's moratorium on deportations, is currently being detained at Hudson County Detention Center. He was denied parole last week on the grounds that he is considered a flight risk. The decision, however, was made by ICE without the approval of the new administration in charge of Homeland Security. This past Wednesday, Javier's family and supporters marched in Foley Square to demand his release. And Javier's attorney at Unlocal.inc has requested a bail hearing. But due to the snowstorm, that has yet to be scheduled. We will keep following that story. Finally, on February 10th, supporters of Prakash Churman gathered outside the Queen's courthouse for Churman's first court date since he was released on bail last month. At the hearing, Judge Kenneth Holder angrily complained about an article in The Independent about Holder's improper role in keeping Prakash in jail. That article was written by two members of Working Class Heroes, Julian Guerrero and myself. Uh, Judge Holder, sorry, not sorry. <laughs> Um, that's our big break in the courthouses of Queens. Um, okay, that's it for headlines. If you've missed any of our interviews with Prakash Cheraman, Christian Smalls, or the sister of Javier Castillo Maradiaga, you can find them at our website at wchradio.org. We're going to take a quick music break and then come back to talk about the state of street vending in the city. We'll also be answering phones to hear your thoughts on that issue. So give us a ring at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. My mind's catching up to me. Dreams keeping me away.
is everything that you got Cause by now everyone knows I ain't had a lot Coming up it was rough, rusty pans and pots So as a young man, I demanded it all Is a house and a car Plus another house just so I can house this broad Plus another car that can go really, really far And a ticket out of space after they land on Mars Is this lost in mall? You know a place where all my grandsons can shop and ball. I need a brand new shirt, new watch and shoes for all my brothers and cousins, uncles and nephews. It's a private island for refuge and a studio space with like 16 rooms for all kind of artists that be recording and rehearsing in my own record company to put out the recordings. Uh. Is the gang of more money? I want to house the homeless. I want to feed the hungry. I want to cure diseases. I want to stop brutality. I want to pay for the best education for my family. I can't sleep. My mind's catching up to me. Dreams keeping me away. Okay, we're back. That was American Dream by Blue Exile and Miguel. That's from Blue Exile's newest album, Miles. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM. We're also streaming at WBAI.org and via podcast on SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, you know the list. Uh, we, um, before we just get into our show, Lupita, um, how, are you, how are you holding up? <laughs> it's a long winter. It's been the longest winter, I think, because the year has been consumed by the pandemic. It just sort of feels like we went from last winter to this winter <laughs> with no break. Right. Um, but I'm holding up all right. I'm still on my Netflix binge, along with probably the rest of America, and uh, trying to keep my sanity, uh, hang out with my dog, and do the least that I can. Nice. How's it going uh, with you, Danny? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm 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 barely hanging in. I think I think a lot of our crew is is particularly barely hanging in this week. We're 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 getting hit like everybody else, I'm sure, not just with winter, but COVID hitting loved ones. I mean, stuff stuff is just really I'm sure this is true for a lot of our listeners as well. And so I'm I am still I'm very grateful though to be here with you, to be here with the super super producer Gio, to be here with our amazing guests. Um it's yeah, it's a gift. And I am also grateful, and this is called a segue, um, for the fact that people are out there continuing to organize uh, and, and actually win victories, because there's a lot of bleakness happening right now as well. And there's people who didn't know, there's a very important victory that's been won by street vendors uh, in New York City against the ongoing policing um, and criminalization that they've been facing, as well as just, you know, a struggle for for legal permits for them to do what everybody in this city wants them to do, which is to provide awesome food um, that they do. Oh, absolutely. And for those who are not familiar with street vending in the city, um, when we're talking about the legalization of permits, uh, people should know that right now the city has had a cap, a limit on legal permits for street vendors for decades. Um, and so they have been street vendors across the city have been organizing uh, years to lift that cap. So today, Stella Becerril, 
an organizer with the Street Vendors Project, is here with us to talk about what this means for street vendors, what they want, and uh, how you can support your favorite street vendor who've been holding us all down with their delicious food. So we just right now we just want to remind folks our phone lines are open at 212-209-2877. Stella's about to start telling us about this organizing. So if you've got questions about that, let us know. Also, if you just want to show some love for some of your favorite uh, street vendors, that would also be great. That number is 212-209-2877. But yeah, Stella, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. Maybe if you could just start by introducing yourselves and just telling us like something you don't you want people to know about you. Yeah, thanks again for having me on the show. Very excited to be here. Um, longtime supporter. Um, yeah, so my name's Stella. I'm the lead organizer at Tree Vendor Project. Um, and a little bit about myself. I've been an organizer for, for my entire adult life, um, working across labor and um, labor, labor movements, uh, racial justice movements, and um, just grassroots organizing. Um, and I'm really excited to tell you all and your audience about street vendors and how you all can support them and the moves they're making to improve their their conditions. So let's get right into it. Um, so when we're talking about these legal permits, the cap on legal permits being lifted, um, many of our listeners may not know what that really means. Um, so if you could just explain what, what does that mean for street vendors and why is it so important? Yeah, so, you know, just real quick context. Um, in the late 70s, early 80s, uh, the city imposed, started to impose limits on how many street vendors could work, um, permitted work, uh, do permitted work across the city. And so in the 70s, they imposed limits on, um, on general merchandise vendors. So these are our vendors who are providing hats and gloves and umbrellas when we need them the most, um, as well um, as, and then in the 80s, they, in 83, they imposed a limit on how many permitted vendors could exist that sold food. Um, and so those limits were there since at, since 78 for general merchandise vendors and since 83 for food vendors, um, the total number of permits for both of these types of workers amounted to just over 5,000. Um, we're a city of between what, eight to 10 million people. Yeah. Uh, people need to work. And a lot of people are not allowed to work in dignified ways, um, you know, in the, in the traditional or, um, or, or, um, yeah, regular economy, right? And so people turn to what they know and what's culturally relevant to their communities and necessary. I mean, you know, I think people forget there's, there's still food deserts in New York City um, and our vendors are providing for these communities. Um, and they're providing for, they, they're, they've been providing for these communities for, for, I mean, as long as New York City's existed, really. The city of New York um, and street vending developed with each other. Right, so you can't have one without the other, and um, and the city forgets that though. So in the eight, in the seventies and eighties, they imposed these limits, um, capping it at, at about five between five thousand and six thousand total permits. Currently, we have an estimate. We estimate that there's about twenty to twenty two thousand vendors in New York City. That means the the majority of them, more than seventy five percent of them, are forced to work illegally. Not for any failure to comply with rules, to try and get a license, to try and get a this. The city has made it impossible for for this workforce to work legally, to do a, an essential job, right? And this gets to the heart of like some of the contradictions that exist. Uh, when the pandemic hit, the city the city um, designated 
food vendors as essential workers. And yet not only did it fail to provide any sort of relief or any sort of help during the pandemic to this community, still doesn't, um, but it also was like, yeah, too bad. You not only get no no uh, relief, you're, continu- you're gonna continue to be criminalized um, and we're gonna do nothing to resolve the broken vending system in New York City. So that's just kind of a little bit of the context um, that existed when, when around the campaign to lift the caps. So first of all, let me just say, that's like the most Bill de Blasio thing I've ever heard of, is like praising you for being essential and then saying also you're illegal and here come the cops. Like, that's crazy. Yep. I mean, I couldn't have said it better. De Blasio actually doesn't like the word illegal. He prefers undocumented. So sorry. That's besides the point. Um, so street vendors have absolutely been around for uh all of New York City's history. And yeah, I think that, as you said, you know, we've reported before how much street vending has grown. Um, So, you know, this struggle to lift the cap on legal permits to get these uh, legal permits, how long has it been going on? How long has it taken for street vendors to, uh, you know, get more permits? And what, now that they've won, what, what does that mean for them? Yeah. So, I mean, I think the struggle to lift the caps has really been around as long as the caps were imposed, since the caps were imposed. Um, formally within, within a campaign, this campaign to lift the caps was launched in 2013 uh, through the Street Vendor Project. The Street Vendor Project has been around for 20 years. It was, it was founded in, 20, uh, in 2001. And, um, and so the, the Lift the Caps uh, campaign was launched in 2013. It failed in the city council in 2016, in December of 2016. And so it had to be relaunched with a new name, right? I, I forget, I think it was uh, uh, city council introduction uh, 1303 uh, between 2013 and 2016. And then it was killed in December of 2016. And it was relaunched in 2017 for the next cycle um, under intro 1116. And so what this bill aimed to do was to increase the number of permits available for for food vendors specifically. And also, I think uh, the second part to this that I think doesn't get talked about often enough, um, and especially in the last few weeks since since it passed in city council, is uh, the fact that this bill will, will see the city create a new agency dedicated to regulating and enforcing this industry, right? I think we need to move into the... Uh, <laughs> The, the realm of seeing street vending as an industry, just like the restaurant industry, just like the retail industry, right? It, it's an industry and with a workforce and the, that workforce deserves rights. That workforce deserves its labor to be recognized. Um, and, it, and it deserves uh, to work um, under dignified and safe conditions. And so this bill, uh, the second part to this bill is going to see the, the the birth of a new agency that is going to be dedicated to the regulation and enforcement of uh, vending regulations in the city, um, which is different than the way that it's regulated now. So uh, first of all, I just want to remind callers, we only have a few, a little bit of time left with Stella on this, on this discussion about street vendors. So if you want to call in, that number is 212-209-2877. Um, but I just want to pick up on what you're saying there, Stella. So right, previously... Uh, I, I think I've read that, that part of this bill is going to take away enforcement from police, right? That, so when we talk about this creation of another agency, which given how much there's been broken promises by the Blasio and the city council on reducing the police budget, this actually does seem like a very important um, 
victory in sort of the the uh, reducing police presence in, in the city. What just so clear, if, let me know if, if that's a correct interpretation. And and what what do you what should street vendors, if folks are listening right now, know about what this means for police and, and city enforcement? Yeah, for sure. So I think, you know, like you said, there's a lot of, there's a history, a long history of broken promises by this administration and many other administrations um, that came before. And especially within street vending, um, you know, even in 2020 alone, in in two separate occasions, both in, um, I want to say, June and September, de, uh, de Blasio's office said that NYPD would no longer be enforcing street vending. And yet, through the fall, through the pandemic, we've seen the continued harassment, the continued fining, the continued arrests of street vendors across the city, especially in areas where there's large concentration. Um, and these also happen to be the areas that were the hardest hit uh, with COVID, right? Um, and so what this bill does and what's what, what, why another reason why it's so important um, is that it codifies this promise that this em- these empty promises that were made over the last uh, year, it actually codifies it and uh, and it removes NYPD as one of the agencies that had the power to enforce and regulate street vending. Um, and so previously before this bill and well, until until this bill goes into effect next year, um, NYPD was among the, the four different agencies that had the power to enforce and regulate a myriad of street vending regulations. Now they will not have that power. The remaining agencies, which includes like transportation and parks, they will continue to be able to enforce certain regulations, but they will all have to be channeled through this agency, which is actually a civilian agency now, rather than a criminal agency. And that's also huge um, because this is a big step forward in decriminalizing the labor and the laborers um, that do this essential work, right? And so this bill is not the end-all be-all. It's it's aiming to introduce 4,000, well, we say introduce 4,000 new permits by uh, 2032. What it's actually doing is not really introducing new permits. It's really legalizing the work of 4,000 vendors over the next 10 years, right? So these vendors have been doing this essential work for years, in some cases, decades, this bill is going to see the legalization, the recognition of their work, um, finally, right? So it's still not enough. Uh, that means that we're looking at at least 10,000 vendors who are still going to be uh, left kind of wondering what is what happens to them, what is to come, right? Um, and what kind of enforcement is going to happen. They're still not going to be able to rest easy when they go to work. Um, and so this bill is not the end-all be-all. It's really just the first step in getting that justice for this community, which is already hyper-exploited, uh, hyper-marginalized, old, like hyper-vulnerable, um, you know, it's just really existing at the intersection of all of the different things uh, that plague our city. And this bill is just the first step forward in the right direction to where we need to go. Absolutely. And it, you know, street vending is, if you are out in the streets of New York, you, it's pretty obvious. Street vendors are mostly immigrant, are mostly women, are mostly undocumented folks. And so it's really no surprise that these are folks that have been the most marginalized when it comes to informal economies. Um, and, you know, I just want to say, leave my churro men alone. Like, some of the worst days of my life where I'm just running from place to place, like a churro, a mango, 
the healthiest snack you can have for breakfast. That's what I'm eating, you know, in between. I mean, not anymore. You can't eat with your mask off on the trains. But before that, um, you know, that's what got me through the day. So I'm very glad to hear that they're going to have way less enforcement. Um, so I guess I just wanted to say to wrap this up, uh, how can how can anyone uh, be involved in the Street Vendors Project or support you guys or just be in the know about what your next move is? Yeah, for sure. So a couple of really tangible things. Um, obviously, if you want to donate to to the cause, you can go to streetvendor.org and make a donation there. Um, the other two ways that you can support is supporting the efforts to pass the uh, two bills in uh, state legislator, le- legislation uh, to create funds for excluded workers. So this would obviously include street vendors, but it'll also include all types of workers that didn't receive any sort of aid. Um either state or federal aid. Um, and so this includes sex workers. This includes recently uh, released from incarceration workers. This includes uh, day laborers, anybody who works in the cash economy, right? So uh, support the bill uh, for fund excluded, called fund excluded workers. Um, you could go to fund excluded workers, just Google it. I forgot the, the exact website. And then the second is that later this year, we're going to be uh, launching our second campaign to completely decriminalized street vending across the state of New York, right? So there's still, there's still a lot of like uh, parameters that, that vendors have to exist within that, um, that prevent people from working in a dignified and safe way. And so we want to ensure that that is no longer the case. Um, and that's going to be the state bill that is going to aim to decriminalize street vending across the state of New York. So when that's launched, please support us when we call for support in the many different ways that we will. Um, and keep supporting your local street vendor by buying their churros, buying everything that they make, and just letting them know that you thank them for their labor. Absolutely. Um, since we didn't have any callers for this section, I'm just going to end it by giving a shout out to my favorite street vendor, Antojitos Doña Fela. She is out in Jackson Heights, Ecuadorian treats, tamales, empanadas. You can find her on Instagram. Um, and we'll also be linking everything about the Street Vendors Project on our website and on our social media. So you can find us at Working Class Handle, Working Class Heroes Radio, um, anywhere on social media. Yeah, we'll definitely be continuing with updates on our show about the progress of this campaign. Stella, uh, thank you so much for breaking all this down for us. We are going to take a quick musical break. And when we come back, uh, Julian uh, will be taking over to chat with restaurant workers about what's been going on in uh, restaurants this past year and what's going ahead. So stick around. We're going to be right back.
que la vida no terminaba, que todo era infinito, porque el cielo lo regalaba. Ahora veo que el tiempo pasa, la vida de Rosa no es nada, solo me queda el consuelo de hacer lo que me da la gana. Quiero inventar mi camino, rezar a mi destino. That was Paque Trabajar by Santa Cecilia. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM, also streaming on WBAI.org. Good evening, everyone. My name is Julian Guerrero. Happy to be here with you all. Shout out to Lupita and Danny for getting us to this segment. Remember, our phone lines are open and we want to hear from you. The number to call is 212-209-2877. Tonight, we'll be talking about the struggles and efforts of restaurant workers to confront this pandemic with dignity. Speaking with us tonight is Natalia Talim, a restaurant worker in Manhattan. She's also a founder of the Restaurant Organizing Project and a member of the New York City DSA's labor branch. Also joining us is Gary Inman, another member of the Restaurant Organizing Project and the New York City Democratic Socialists of America. Welcome to Working Class Heroes, guys. It's a pleasure to have you both on our show. Thank you for having us. I'm excited to be here. Love the podcast. Awesome, thanks. We, um, you know, this 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 topic is something close to my heart. I think the the longest job I've had in my life has been working at a restaurant. So I'm I'm super interested to hear what you guys have to say and and you know just to see how we can try to break this down with our listeners. Um, so uh, let's let's get into it. Can you both speak uh, to your experience in the restaurant industry? Um, how long have you been a restaurant worker and how has your work been affected by the pandemic? Yeah, uh, so I started cooking in restaurants back when I graduated from high school in Kentucky about seven years ago. Uh, I caught the bug and decided to move up to New York to work in these restaurants because I can't imagine a better place to learn. And um, yeah, I've been a restaurant worker for 15 years. Um I've been at my current job for 10 and I have to say like even before the pandemic I was starting to have these anxieties about like the precarity like in the sense that I didn't ha- I don't I didn't have some other job I wanted to go to I want to be a restaurant worker but there's so many risks involved with you know needing your body to to work and if you have an injury um you know there's no kind of retirement so I was starting to think about my long term and like what it was going to be like as I as I age as a restaurant worker and then I had no idea but um that question was going to face all of us together very soon and it unfolded in a way that I totally did not expect but I feel like we're all feeling the precarity together right now yeah absolutely I mean I remember at at one point the unemployment rate was something like you know 40%, 40%, something like that. I mean, just it's just kind of crazy, the the shock, um, both economic, personal, um, mental, that, you know, shock that people are, are, are feeling throughout this pandemic. Um, I kind of want to ask a question about how people see restaurant work, just because I, I think it'd be good for us to delve a little deeper into into that sense of precarity that you were feeling even before the pandemic, you know? And I, and I think it's something worthwhile talking about because, you know, in popular culture, working at a restaurant, I think is often shown as like an incredibly hard career that's in, that, that aspiring restaurant workers must sort of suffer through or as a dead end job for people with, you know, no ambitions left. 
but you know, millions of people make a living off this type of work. I've seen plenty of my coworkers when I worked at a restaurant raise whole families on their salary, and they were working very hard. But I mean, it was it was definitely an opportunity that they were taking advantage of to to get their kids through school, you know, pay the rent, those kinds of things. Um, but I think those perceptions kind of still exist in, in a big way. Um, can you guys talk about? you know, why those perceptions exist and, and how it impacts restaurant workers? Yeah, uh, you know, it's like, you know, having all this downtime in the pandemic has given me a lot of time to reflect on like this question exactly. And I think it like uh, deals with how we as, a, we as a society like view what is like honorable and like worthy work. I think like, you know, a bunch of like our brain trust and like I think like the smartest and brightest people end up inevitably like either like, you know, becoming a, something like an engineer for Raytheon or like getting an astrophysics degree, but like using that to design algorithms for Wall Street. Um, and like, you know, either becoming like uh, a lawyer uh, or, and like basically filling out these roles to uh, both like uphold and uh, like, conti like continue and perpetuate like, you know, this, this these systems of inequity that like lead to people that perceive like work that isn't in these high paying jobs as like, uh as something that's like worthy pr to pursue but like not not everyone is like destined to become a lawyer or a doctor even or uh you know a hedge fund manager and like i think that like you know any form of work outside of that is like worthy and if you want to make a living off of that you should and you know like it is it's 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 definitely like possible to get to make a living off of restaurant work and i think it's honest i think it's honorable and i think you know uh you know it's time to like put more of the workers' voices, like, you know, on the front and, like, uh, on the front lines and, like, let people know that, like, you know, this is an honorable profession, like. Yeah, I, and, and just to add to that, um, you know, there's this classification of it being unskilled labor um, and an underappreciation of actually how difficult, un quote, unquote, unskilled labor is. Um, and I think that that in a lot of ways becomes the justification for for kind of low pay and looking at it as as like not a quote unquote real job is how I, I, I you know, dispute that. Um, and it contributes to the way that restaurants are shaped um, and not to do a whole like uh, st statistics drop. But, um, you know, only only one point three percent of restaurant workers are unionized. It's the lowest unionization rates of any industry. Um, the federal minimum wage for tipped workers is still $2.13 an hour. And the tipped minimum, the sub minimum wage came from the end of slavery, where people felt uncomfortable paying freed slaves a wage. So came up with the tipping system. Um, restaurant workers are twice as likely to be part time than other industries. And only 14.9% of restaurant workers qualify for health insurance through their job. And uh, yeah, it's just maddening because of how, like, you see how many restaurant workers, in particular immigrant restaurant workers, have been considered essential, like so essential to this economy, and yet are treated as being so disposable. And even the way that Cuomo approached restaurant workers with the whole reopening of indoor dining, it's like, he's like, you think you're going to qualify for the vaccine? LOL. But it's like, no, actually, we have a lot of leverage right now because restaurant workers are the ones who've been helping everyone else get through this pandemic. That that that's just wild. Those string of facts that you laid out for us. I mean, I, I had no idea um, that that were, is where tipping as a as a system sort of came from. And it's just it's just ridiculous. I mean, the fact that people are getting 
you know, paid less than $3 per hour. I mean, that is wild. That is just absolutely wild in, in this day and age. Um, which, you know, let's see if President Biden comes through with a $15 minimum wage, federal minimum wage, which I think is becoming more and more a thing on the chopping block uh, from his administration. So, yeah, big promises there. Thanks, Guy. Um, I think, you know, something that definitely is is wild as well is that I've, you know, like kind of what you were saying about immigration. I, I've heard that 60 percent of New York restaurant workers are immigrants um, and that a huge, a huge segment, if not the majority, uh, are women. You know, these are groups of people that are often associated with the base of, of the Democratic Party and, you know, something that the labor movement should at least be focusing on. But like you're saying, it's the most ununionized sector in the entire sort of um, in the economy. Why is that? How come the, the American labor movement hasn't organized restaurant workers? Yeah. I mean, I want to I, I want to say like that. I hope it goes without saying that unions are on our side and are part of the same project as anyone who's trying to make restaurant work better. Um, but I do think that from a union perspective, taking on the project of trying to organize restaurants is a very, very risky ordeal that often when you think about the cost benefit analysis um, doesn't lead towards that being the focus of, of any union drive. Um, the purpose of a union drive is to expand the base of members, and restaurants are very small workplaces. Um, nine out of 10 restaurants have less than 50 employees. They're also very difficult to organize because they have low profit margins, which means that sometimes it's easier for an establishment to close and just like reopen somewhere else than have to deal with than deal with the union drive. So they have all kinds of ways that they can undermine um, attempts at unionizing. And I, you know, I think I understand that from that, those strategic concerns, I'm sympathetic as to why unions might not uh, have have restaurants on the top of their list to organize. Um, but I do think it speaks to why we need worker organizers in restaurants, because our perspective of what needs to change on the job is strategic for us. Um, and so I feel like once we can build up um, worker run and, and directed uh, organizations, we, we could start to impact some of these issues. And um, the, the reality is that I think there's a lot of things happening, like the organizing of delivery workers, app workers, food vendors project that's going to test the limits of the existing um, the existing trade union movement that we have and hopefully um, push it to expand and also develop new organizations in that process. Yeah, and like, aside, apart from like the structural issues that like unions see as like being tough is to organize in like places like independent restaurants, I feel like uh, other factors like people understanding like the true cost of food, paying more for the product that they eat, and like also like understanding that people are like trying to make a living off of this and like should be paid a living wage is big. And also from my experience is like being like a line cook, like uh, authority usually runs from the top down. Like, you know, we call uh, I've seen people call like businesses and corporations like, uh, you know, kind of like tyrannical dictatorships within the American system of democracy. And, and I think that problem, that issue, uh, it gets magnified even more like in the kitchens that I worked in, like anti-intellectualism plays a big role in how people like maintain order uh, anywhere from like not, you know, being given a strict set of like mise en place to prepare or even just like not being allowed to contribute to the menu or like, you know, give feedback uh, in terms of like any kind of like issue that may arise in terms of production or service. Um, that being said, like uh, what that creates is basically just like uh, a network where people feel intimidated and disincentivized to speak out. 
you know, um, so like, you know, the, I, I believe like the, I'm not too familiar with uh, how to get a union going for a restaurant. Um, but it seems like it has to like really be a few people that will try to like uh, organize their coworkers and like get a vote going. Um, but at the same time, it's like if everyone else is afraid of being fired and blacklisted because, you know, this isn't, this is an employment at will employment state, like they're not going to like, uh, they're not going to come together because, you know, just like the threat of like losing our connections in a, you know, a community as tight as New York City is like, so is like very real. In my experience working at a restaurant, you know, I would talk to 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 immigrant workers, because in my where I worked, I mean, the entire you know back house was immigrant worker labor, um, and and pretty significant amounts of it in in the front of the house, um, and you know, speaking with them, they would tell me that they agree with the idea. They don't want to be paid, you know, paid wages that are just incredibly you know, two, three dollars, something like that per hour, they they want to improve their conditions. And I remember speaking with one of them and they told me, you know, that it's just it's just such a precarious situation. For example, he told me a story about how he had worked at a different restaurant. Um, he worked like a whole week, asked for his pay and the owner told him, no, you know, here we pay biweekly. And so he worked the second week. And again, his owner told him, uh, not his owner, sorry, the, the, the owner of the restaurant told him that, uh, that he would get paid at the end of the month. After working a whole month without pay, he asked the, the restaurant owner one more time to get paid. And he asked him, the owner, down into the basement where he brandished a gun and basically told him to get lost. And that, to me, is just like the situation for so many immigrant workers who also don't have protections, don't have... Um, as many rights as they should in in the city and in this country. I think it makes those things all that much more sort of compounded. Um, have you guys ever heard crazy stories like that, or, or is that something sort of? Yeah, I mean, like it's funny. It's funny you bring that up because you know when uh, when we were when I like decided like to go try to like work in restaurants again. I was like helping out some friends uh, at like this like uh, vegan pasta bar down on the Lower East Side, and like everything was going well. We were getting good wages. You know the the company didn't offer benefits, but we were getting eighteen dollars an hour. So like we didn't really bat an eye at it. You know it was something we were going to bring up later. But uh, you know in the middle in the middle of a pandemic and like when indoor dining first came back last fall, and you know even they weren't doing the most to. Uh, you know, temperature trace or like really monitor the safety and well-being of their employees. Uh, they a bunch of our paychecks ended up bouncing for three straight weeks. Like, um, and like I just like think that like, you know, with what we're going through, like going to work in a pandemic, like working in a taking taking public transportation, like working in close confines where you know, we don't have much, we don't have the freedom to move around and like stay six feet away from people. Like if you, if you've ever worked the line or ever worked in a restaurant during a busy dinner service, you just know that that's impossible, regardless if we're like, if we like reduced, uh, if we, if we have reduced capacity, like people are going to, people are going to come together. Um, and like that being said, like, you know, it, it just, it's just insane that like, with everything that we're putting ourselves through to help other people make more money than what we're getting paid, like, uh, we shouldn't have to deal with like three weeks of like bounced paychecks. We shouldn't have to deal with like, 
uh, you know, non-apologies and like, un- like, and like being, being put in precarious, like, uh, situations by our bosses when like, you know, most of the time they're not really even present. Um, in fact, like we deserve more, like we deserve hazard pay through all of this, like, you know, and like to like really like tackle the route, we should have, we should have like been paid to stay home for three months last year. Absolutely. Thanks for that, Gary. We're going to take a quick music break. And when we come back, we'll have more questions for Natalia and Gary. And we'll also be taking calls. So pull out your phone and get in touch with us at 212-209-2877. Again, that number is 212-209-2877. We'll be right back. That was Barely Alive by Hope Debates and North 40, a local band from right here in New York City. You're listening to Working Class Heroes Radio on WBAI 99.5 FM, also streaming on WBAI.org. My name is Julian, and I'm here with Natalia and Gary, two New York City restaurant workers and members of the Restaurant Organizing Project. We've been speaking about the nature of restaurant, restaurant work and how it's been seen by the public, and I believe we actually have couple new callers. So I want to welcome our first caller onto Working Class Heroes Radio. Caller, what's your name and where are you calling from? Is that me? Yes, sir. Oh, oh okay. Hi. How are, you? How are you? My name's Antonio. Right now I'm in Manhattan. Hey, I originate Antonio, from the Bronx. Working Class Heroes Radio. Yeah. Oh, I, I, I got to give you guys a nod because I don't know what you guys did to get this together to come on the air. This is something that needed to be on the air, BAI. I don't know forever, decades ago, because the restaurant industry was so much of a part of, of New York and people working their way through and their careers and whatnot. And so many arts people, you know, work in the hospitality industry, uh, 
on the way up. I'm pretty sure many who, producers who are on the air used to work in restaurants at some point or cafes. Um, I was thinking when you were talking about organizing and how to do it and all this, and what, one thing that came to mind is if we, if we can just get a few a little, uh, well-known chefs or even just some that are just popular in New York to unionize and work it that way, you know, um, I have, I, do you guys meet and have like strategy meetings and things like this outside of the air on being on the air? Definitely, Antonio. Uh, thanks for, for your call. We'll definitely pass yeah, it over uh, yeah, to Gary. I'll, I'll wait for your Italian. contact. Yes. Oh. Thank you. Absolutely. Gary, Natalia, what do you guys think? Um, I, it's great to have a caller to show you guys some love. Um, and definitely, um, you know, talking about strategies about how to, how to take this monster on. What do you guys think? Yeah, no, well, Antonio just really speaks to the fact that there's so many people who think of themselves as a part of the restaurant industry, whether they're, they've left those jobs or not, it like really sticks with you. Um, and that's something I found a lot doing this organizing. Um, we do have we, we have weekly calls uh, in New York City. We meet on Zoom. Um, if you want to get plugged in, you can email us at restaurants at dsacommittees.org. Just say that you, you're looking to plug into the New York crew and we can plug you in. Um, and yeah, I mean, there's a lot of strategy questions to be had. And the thing that just really guides my strategy is like we need to have spaces where the workers in the industry can also shape it and take part. Because I do think it's a very... Um, it's a very celebrity driven industry in some ways because it is such a public facing um, world. Um, and I, I find that a lot of times there's a lot of some of the big chefs in the industry claim to speak for us. But um, actually, like from the workers perspective, we we have a little bit of a different take. So we're very much about centering the the the, the voices of the workers in the industry. Great. I actually want to see if we can take our next caller. If they're still on the line, caller, welcome to Working Class Heroes Radio. What's your name and where are you calling from? Yeah, my name is Hammer, and I'm from Queens. And um, I, when I was in college, I worked, you know, in a restaurant in the college, and that helped me out. But I think the restaurant industry, um, I think you're attacking it the wrong way. Why I say that is because uh, as the governors of the state, and we live in a free state, a free nation, and they decided that they wanted to um, do this, okay, and shut down restaurants, then all bills should have been shut down. Everything, anybody paying anything, any money flowing should have been stopped. Costco kept going, all the rest of the um, spots kept going, your bill collectors, um, um, the heat with Con Edison and everything, for some reason, they didn't get shut down because they felt it was essential, like disease is not going to go to them. They're not going to spread the disease. So it was, it's some, I think it should have been more organized towards the government. If you're going to shut down the city, you need to shut down everything. Now, if this is true. Okay, if it's a pandemic, nobody should have been, Nobody should have been paying rent. Nobody should have been collecting money. Things should have been in a frozen state. Definitely, and definitely agree with you. Is- definitely uh, agree with you. Thanks, thanks for your call, Hama from from Queens. Um, what do you guys think about that? I know, I know, there's a lot of a lot of back and forth about you know indoor dining and the opening and closing and reopening. What are your thoughts? 
Yeah. Um, I don't know. This kind of like comes from like a, it's like a parable of my like own work experience. Like when I was like, you know, working a position that was responsible for a lot of production, like you invest the time in your, in the beginning of your shift to take care of the biggest things, to take care of the biggest needs and the things that need to be addressed most. Um, with that being said, like, I think that's the exact same way we should have handled this pandemic. Like, of course, like, you know, is it going to cost a lot to like pay people to stay home to, uh, to provide rent and mortgage relief? Yeah, it is. But like, the thing is like, look how much this is costing us now, not only in terms of like, like money, which is like, I don't know how much money we probably lost, like as a country, it's probably like trillions of dollars. We're also like, we're now within earshot of losing a half a million people to COVID when this thing could have been like shut down and like abated uh, like every other function, like every other developed country in the world. Absolutely. Com- completely agree with you. I, I want to sort of move on because I-, I don't think we have too much time and I want to give you guys a chance to talk about, you know, we've mentioned the restaurant organizing project a few times. Um, but can you guys, you know, talk to us about it? Like, what do you, what are you guys doing? What's the restaurant uh, organizing project about really? Yeah. I mean, So we started this project at the start of the COVID crisis, and we're coming up on about a year. Um, The the feeling was that we need to use this time, like this time when we're all kind of experiencing a collective, uh, collectively how precarious this industry is, that it's an opportunity for us to actually strategize, make networks, create materials that we're going to be able to use um, when things do reopen fully again, um, so nationally we're 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 a national organization. We have um, we have two calls a month. Uh, the next one is going to be this coming Tuesday. Um, you can register for it at bit.ly/slash/feb/family/meal, F-E-B family meal. Um, we're also about to launch a national newsletter, which is going to highlight the struggles and uh, tribulations of, of restaurant workers and our efforts to organize and figure out what we're do- what we're going to do about this industry. But in general, like we want to prepare, we want to prepare so that we know that everybody I've talked to who's going back to work is saying that they're doing it for less pay, for longer hours, with skeleton crews, with lots of new side work, things that are dangerous. Like we we don't want that to become normal. And if we're going to make sure that that doesn't become normal, we got to be organized and we got to figure out how we're going to put forward an alternative for what the industry could look like um, if workers were actually included in the discussion. Um, And I will just say a couple of other ways to get involved. And I hope if there's a second, maybe Gary can talk about how he found ROP. But um, you can find us. uh, Our national Twitter handle is Restaurant Proj, Restaurant P-R-O-J on Twitter. And then in New York City, you can find us on Twitter at NYC Rest Workers and on Instagram at NYC Restaurant Workers. Um, we also started um, a, a campaign um, to say restaurant workers should be fully vaccinated before we're expected to do indoor dining. And you can sign that petition at bit.ly slash vaccine first. Awesome. Thanks for that. Gary, how did you get to the restaurant organizing project? You know, we don't have too much time, so. Uh, yeah, so uh, basically just, just through Instagram, like I found myself interacting with uh, the Texas Service uh, Workers Coalition down in Austin. And, you know, I got into a conversation with the, with the woman who runs that account. And she was able to plug me in here. So, like, uh, if anything, that just shows, like, how much of a, how much, like, of a great network we have and how readily, you know, we just want to, like, build our ranks and, like, accept anyone who wants to help organize and fight for, you know, a better future for restaurant workers. 
So we're out of time, but it's been a real, real pleasure to have had both of you here on our show. I really wish the restaurant organizing project existed when I was working at a restaurant, um, but I'm so, so happy to hear that it, that it's around. Uh, people should definitely check it out. I think it's a it's an honorable job, an honorable occupation, and that you know one that should be organized so that people can can get more dignity on the job and be able to live uh, a much more happier and, and calm life uh, with some good working conditions. So thank you guys again for being on our show. Thanks for having us. So much. That's awesome. Yeah. So we're unfortunately out of time for today. Thank you all for listening. Shout out to the working class heroes team for their work on the show and to Gio, our super engineer here at WBAI. Stay health, stay healthy, stay safe, and as always, New York in solidarity.